0: Happy February. Oh my goodness, I can't say it. I've been doing that wine study too soon. <laughs> I think
1: I think you just had a stroke.
0: I think I but did. But we're not doing the stroke is, one. I we know. already did that one. I know. I'm so sorry. Do you want to say it again? No, I'm scared too. Happy February. <laughs> And we're actually... And happy anniversary, Monique. Well, thank you very much. It's our
1: third anniversary of doing our podcast. podcast.
0: And we're actually doing it before February the 1st. Like, we're going to be there for February the 1st this time, on time. I've said February really difficult each time. <sighs> I really haven't had any wine. So for any of you who are very concerned about me, there was no wine.
1: So, which means they should be more concerned about you. I know. You I think maybe I've stroke. had too much
0: coffee. Maybe that's what the problems. But happy anyway, anniversary.
1: Happy anniversary. Thank you guys for listening for three years. I know. There's lots and lots of you. like Exactly. 7,000 people listen to us. I can't believe it.
0: We haven't talked about our kitchen of knowledge for a while, but we're not really in the we, kitchen today. No, we're I know.
1: in a place but, that... Yes. Well, we won't name it, but it's somewhere we really don't want to
0: be. <laughs> no. Anyways, let's maybe start with our February podcast and we've called it uh, Playing by the Rules and we're going to talk about Cuz neither bit. of us
1: ever play by the rules. Exactly. It's kind of funny.
0: It is a bit funny. We
1: play by these rules though.
0: I think so cuz these are important. They're evidence-based rules. So one of the most professionally challenging and rewarding experiences in nursing is mentoring and growing new nurses and or in my case nurse practitioners. And I've been very fortunate in my 10 years as an NP. Would you believe, actually, February is my 10th anniversary as an NP in the emergency department? Holy cow. I know. But I've been very fortunate because I've had a lot of NP students who kind of push me to examine the rationales for the decision-making in diagnosing and treating patients. And I was also recently at dinner and was fortunate enough to sit beside Dr. Grant Innes, who is the he editor? Is one of the
1: smartest people we yes, know. Yes,
0: exactly. Who is the editor of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine? And well we deserved. Were just very well. He actually started the Canadian Journal of Emergency really? Medicine. Really? Yeah, he did.
1: And he's a really nice guy. He is. He's but a you lovely. I love it when people are I nice. I know
0: it's very nice and smart. But we were discussing discussing. Oh my goodness! We were discussing the issue of an, an over reliance on diagnostic imaging. And all of these kind of factors led uh, to this podcast and a discussion about good clinical guidelines to help determine when patients actually need imaging or treating. It is a common belief in medicine that a good history and physical exam will lead to a correct diagnosis, whereas imaging and lab tests should only serve a complementary role, like a best supporting actress sort of thing. So for those of you who listen to emergency medicine abstracts, Dr. Jerry Hoffman has really been that voice of talking about this over-reliance on what he calls expensive, newfangled tests instead of clinical intuition, history, and physical exam and re-evaluation in the ED. And Dr. Rick Bukata has also voiced concerns that modern emergency medicine residency programs teach young EPs how to order tests, but not how to not order tests. So in recent papers, it was identified that up to 42% of ED patients have at least one blood test, often ordered as routine or protocol-based pathways from triage the number of CTs, MRIs have increased three to nine times between 2001 and 2010. And that's probably because of availability. So Absolutely. three to nine is a large range. We
1: all joke at work that we should just have it installed at the front door. Exactly.
0: You go in as you, you get, get to You get ct as you come in
1: and then it's on the screen at triage <laughs> exactly. when they get there. Exactly. Yeah.
0: But now, uh, now I think we are not actually saying that there isn't a need for lab tests or CTs or x-rays. There are some some absolutely that are necessary to rule in or rule out potentially life-threatening or disabling disease or injuries. But I do think we have to be watchful about why we order tests. And sometimes it has been difficult to assess whether there is an overall benefit for increasing use of advanced imaging or common lab tests that we order So, for example, despite the increased use of CTs to diagnose PE, mortality remains unchanged. Uh, False positive appendectomy rates have not improved since the CT era, and lots of... um, Children come in with a fever and they're diagnosed with a UTI by a urine dipstick, dipstick or a urinalysis. And we actually miss other treatable causes for the febrile illness, which might have just been viral. But because we're looking for something, mm-hmm. then they get treated for it. And I think because we do have such a, a huge kind of a nurse-initiated type Um, lab tests and sometimes x-rays as well that we really need to understand why we're choosing to do things right
1: and it's it's always been my obviously we come from a facility where nurses have been ordering um, tests Mm x-rays and and blood work since we both started there yeah And, and it just is the way that place has always run and and i think as we protocolize a lot more of this you do get that over-reliance or that over-ordering of things. Yeah, a bit zealous, overzealous. And, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be, but I, I always I want nurses especially to understand when they're ordering something, someone should be able to come up 10 seconds later and go, why did you put in a CBC? Exactly. And you should be able to say, this because I'm looking reason. for an increased white count because yes. I think they might be septic. like yes. it, There should be an answer to that, not just because it's a checkbox on our chest pain pathway. Exactly. And
0: shouldn't I, be I think a knee-jerk reaction. That's really
1: important to kind of know why you're ordering something if you are. And, Absolutely. Um, and to be willing as a nurse to not see it as a downfall when someone says, oh, I wouldn't have ordered that. And go, oh, okay, tell me why." why. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So this has actually become such an issue that the American College of Emergency Physicians identified 10 low-value clinical actions as part of a campaign called Choosing Wisely. Half of these 10 ASEP Choosing Wisely items are diagnostic, all relating to CT imaging of low-risk patients. Since we are from Canada, we also have a Choosing Wisely Canada, which is a national campaign to help clinicians and patients engage in conversations about unnecessary tests and treatments and make smart and effective care choices. Was launched in 2014 it's organized by a small team from the university of toronto the cma or the canadian medical association and saint michael's hospital in toronto which is kind of their inner city downtown hospital Uh, it's a part of a global movement that began in the united states in 2012 and now spans 20 countries across five continents here in canada it's been reported that up to 30 percent of test treatments and procedures in canada are potentially unnecessary Now, when we talk about unnecessary tests, treatments, and procedures, what we mean is that they are not adding value for patients, potentially exposing patients to harm, leading to more testing to investigate false positives, and contributing to unwarranted stress for patients and their families, and using precious time and resources. Mm -hmm. So why does this happen? Well, there are some theories. Um, Practice habits are traditionally difficult to change, even in the face of new evidence. Patients might demand tests and treatments they are misinformed about, and we honestly see that where A sometimes lot. it's just easier to send them for an x-ray right easier yeah. just to put them on antibiotics because yes. then they'll go away yeah uh another point lack of time for shared decision making between clinicians and patients outdated decision support systems encourage overordering, defensive medicine and fear of malpractice lawsuits drive over investigations and payment systems reward doing more in in certain jurisdictions
0: absolutely if you're a fee-for-service you get more you get more money the more you do yeah
1: so if you go to the website choosing wisely canada you'll see recommendations for many different medical specialties in emergency the top 10 recommendations from june 2017 um, and again not saying do this tomorrow when you walk (laughs) in but obviously look into it um don't order ct head scans in adults and children who suffered minor head injuries unless they're positive for a validated head injury clinical decision rule. Right. Don't prescribe antibiotics in adults with bronchitis, asthma, and children with bronchiolitis. Children's. Children's. The little children, <laughs> And the kids. Don't order lumbosacral. <laughs> I think there's a typo there. Yes, but, I think so. Um, or let's Lumbar, put it in, in my kind of language. Yeah. Don't order low back spinal imaging in patients with non-traumatic low back pain who have no pathologic indicators. Mm -hmm. Don't order neck radiographs in patients who have a negative exam using the Canadian C-spine rules. Don't prescribe antibiotics after incision and drainage of an uncomplicated skin abscess unless a cellulitis exists. Don't order CT head scans in adult patients with simple syncope in the absence of high-risk predictors. There's a lot of don'ts here. Yeah, I know. Exactly. What are we supposed to do now? I guess just be nice. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: I cure disease with tea, toast, and warm blankets. I've said it for years, and now I'm being validated. (laughs) Exactly. All right, carrying on. Don't order CT, pulmonary angiograms, or VQ scans in patients with suspected PE until risk stratification with a decision rule has been applied, and when indicated, D-dimer results are obtained and we have a podcast on d-dimers that you can go listen to if you want to know more about that don't use antibiotics in adults and children with uncomplicated sore throats oh we have a podcast on on that that too wow this is like a curriculum (laughs)
0: exactly
1: don't order ankle and or foot x-rays in patients who have a negative exam using ottawa ankle rules i think we did a podcast on that as well
0: or we are going to maybe i don't think we have yet Oh, okay. All right. I thought we did. Maybe. I, I don't know. remember. It's been to a look. long three, three years, years with you, I let know. me tell you. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and don't use antibiotics in adults and children with uncomplicated acute otitis media.
0: Yeah. It's interesting, though. A lot of the ones that you've talked about, as you said, we've talked about in our previous podcasts. And uh, just in regards to the antibiotics, just to let you guys know that there's actually a sub-campaign under the Choosing Wisely website called Antibiotic Wisely, and there's a great recommendations for antibiotic use and when patients should or should not be giving it. And as we said, we think it is important for nurses to un- arm themselves with the rationale for ordering these tests rather than have a knee-jerk reaction to expedite patient flow, which a lot of times is what we do. But it's interesting to me that when you're reading those recommendations, you have may have noticed that there's a lot of... Re- quotes, or reliance on validated clinical decision rules, like the CT head rules, the Canadian CT head rules, the Canadian C-spine rules, the Ottawa ankle rules, etc. And many of these rules you can find online, and we don't really want to just list the rules themselves here, so as you can kind of look them up. Right. We thought it would be interesting, though, to look at a couple of lesser-known rules in the context of some clinical presentations, because I think that's nice to apply them and see why... Um, they are helpful and why they may not be helpful. So let's talk about a young 19-year-old guy who presents with increasing right lower quadrant pain for about four days. He says it started out as generalized abdominal pain. It's now more localized in the right lower quadrant. He's not nauseous. He's not vomiting. He doesn't have a fever, no urinary symptoms, no penile discharge, no new sexual partner. He's heterosexual in a monogamous relationship, uses condoms, no history of STI. He hasn't hurt himself. He wasn't in a trauma of any kind. He has noted that he doesn't really feel much like eating. And when he walks, it gets worse. And if he's on the bus and it goes over a bump, it seems to increase the pain. Mm. There's a long wait in the emergency department. Um, So the nurses who see the patient order a CBC and electrolyte panel and they dip his urine. So now what? So his story sounds pretty good for appendicitis. Um, His clinical exam, he's quite tender on palpation to that right lower quadrant, which is a positive McBurney sign, but no rebound. But still... Pretty indicative of appendicitis. So do we predict that the eMERGE physician or the MP is going to immediately order a CT, an ultrasound, an MRI, depending on what they have?
1: Hmm, Probably an ultrasound. Yeah. Unless it's after four.
0: Yeah. And then who knows? Nothing. So I wonder (laughs) if there's maybe a clinical decision rule that might be able to help us here. That's going to keep
1: ultrasound open later?
0: No, but to help us with this kind of scoring system used to diagnose whether this is appendicitis or not. So there is. Wonderful. Yeah. It's called the Alvarado score which is a clinical scoring system and it's used for specifically for appendicitis. And the score has six clinical items and two laboratory measurements with a total of about 10 points. It was actually introduced way back in 1986 and although it was meant initially for pregnant females to prevent imaging of course, it has been actually extensively validated in the non-pregnant population. So the score includes abdominal pain that goes to the right iliac fossa, anorexia or ketones in the urine, nausea or vomiting, tenderness in the right iliac fossa, rebound tenderness, fever of 37.3, a white blood cell count more than uh, 10,000 white blood cells per microliter in the serum, and neutrophilia or an increase in the percentage of neutrophils in the white blood cell count. The two most important factors are actually tenderness in the right lower quadrant and an elevated white blood cell. And they're both given two points, and the other ones are just given one point each for a possible total of 10 points. So a score of five or six is compatible with the diagnosis of an acute appendicitis. A score of seven or eight indicates it's probably appendicitis. And a score of nine or 10 says, that's an appendicitis. And the limitations of this score, though, was that some studies have shown that it's only 72% accurate. In 2011, BMC Medicine published an article reviewing all the studies and literature about the Alvarado score, and the conclusion was that it was a useful diagnostic rule-out score at a cut point of 5 for all patient groups. The score, though, works really well in men. It's a bit inconsistent with kids, and it over-predicts the possibility of appendicitis in women across all risk factors. So those are the limitations in the study itself. Okay,
1: so could it actually help us then?
0: I think it could because studies have shown that a score of less than four, remember the rule out, right? Right. Less than four, probably not appendicitis. Score of four to seven, maybe you should consider some type of imaging, um, ultrasound or CT. And a score of greater than seven, maybe you just take them to surgery. Because there is a 58 to 88% chance of a possible appendicitis. And don't forget, initially, when I told you that their false positive appendectomies have not changed with the advent of CT. So just, you know, putting that into some context. I think that what we need to remember, it's, it's really important that when we proceed in diagnostics, diagnostics are not benign. So having clinical tools is helpful that combination of history, physical exam, and the Alvarado score might actually direct treatment with or without some type of imaging. So if we look at the limitations in men, definitely, definitely use it with men because it it validates it. With women and children, we may need to increase our threshold in imaging, but we could all start with ultrasound because there's no radiation, and then we can decide after that what we can do. For an ultrasound to be diagnostic, though, of appendicitis, you kind of have to see the appendix. If you speak to a radiologist, they feel that an appendicitis can also be excluded if the ultrasound shows no secondary signs of appendicitis. So if they see some mesenteric fat, fluid collection, uh, localized dilated small bowel loop. However, it's been difficult to get the eMERGE physician, radiologist, and general surgeons to agree upon is that enough? What tests are actually necessary? And therefore, we need to kind of continue to push for validated clinical tools to help come up with the best practice with the least harm. So for interest, let's just go back to our case and see how he scored. So our patient was afebrile, but he did have ketones in his urine and his white count was 13. So he gets two points for pain in the right lower quadrant, two points for elevated white blood cell count. He gets one point for anorexia slash ketones in his urine and another one point for pain that has migrated to the right lower quadrant. So his score is six. So this could be compatible with an acute appendicitis and you could consider imaging or you could just take him to the OR. Hmm. Kind of interesting, right? It is. Yeah. Well, let's look at another
1: case. So last month we talked about strokes. So let's discuss a different score. Yeah. So our case study is a 72 year old lady, Irma. She comes to the ED with dizziness and She's been recently diagnosed with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. She's been scheduled to see a cardiologist her GP started her on digoxin and told her to take an ASA every day. On arrival to the ED, she's in a normal sinus rhythm and feels much better. The cardiology resident arrives at the bedside and discusses calculating the CHADS2 score with the nurses. Well, what, what is, is that the score? chads score? I know. Funny you should ask. Hmm. The CHADS2 score is an updated version. And it's
0: updated version. Sorry, Sorry. and
1: it's updated version. The chads Chad's, Chad's vast. to VASC score, <laughs> we're getting into these five-line-long studies again, I know. are clinical prediction rules for estimating the risk of stroke in patients with non-rheumatic atrial fibrillation. So basically, people in AFib. Yeah. The score is used to determine whether or not treatment is required with anticoagulation therapy or antiplatelet therapy as atrial fib is linked to a risk of stroke, as we exactly. learned last month. Yeah. A high score corresponds to a greater risk of stroke, while a low score corresponds to a lower risk. The CHADS2 score is one of several risk stratification tools that can help determine the one-year risk of an ischemic stroke in a non-anticoagulated patient with non-valvular AF. Right. So normal AFib. Yeah. So what is the score? One point's given for each of CHF history, hypertension history, age greater than 75, or diabetes history. Yeah. Two points are given for previous stroke or TIA symptoms. Okay. So that makes total it's all math, love. isn't it? It is God,
0: math,
1: <laughs> or it's an app on your iPhone. It's, let's be honest. It is actually. <laughs> if you go into to any website med-calc or whatever, exactly, yeah. they'll
0: calculate it all for you.
1: So for patients who are identified as moderate, which only takes a score of one to two, mm-hmm. or high risk for ischemic stroke, greater than three, anticoagulation therapy should be considered. Mm-hmm. One recommendation suggests a zero score is low risk and may not require anticoagulation. However, there's also literature that suggests that not all patients with a CHADS2 score of zero are at low risk for ischemic stroke. So you may consider using the CHADS2 VASC score to further risk stratify patients who are identified as low risk. So if you're so high risk... It's almost a screening one, right? If you're high risk to start, then the answer's there. If yeah. you get a score of zero, you then go to step two, which is this chads, chad's to VASC, vasc score yeah for afib in stroke risk so the chads to vasc score ages 65 to 74 get one point 75 and over get two if mm. you're a female you get a point just for showing up wow my goodness girl power <laughs>
0: exactly
1: the I don't same... think i want
0: girl power in this case though. no probably no. not no
1: The same as... It's because you guys live forever. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same as in the CHADS2 score, you get one point each for CHF history, hypertension, and diabetes, but the CHADS2 VASC score also gives you another point for vascular disease, and you get two points for previous stroke or TIA symptoms.
0: Which was the same as the first one, So lots of like
1: ones and twos, and you may be confused by now. Again, this is why you use a calculator. Exactly. Like a, a medical calculator of some sort, app, thing. I'm losing words. Yeah. More coffee. So one recommendation suggests a zero score is low risk and may not require anticoagulation of this new system. Right. A one score is low to moderate risk and should consider antiplatelet or anticoagulation therapy and two or greater is moderate high and should be on anticoagulation. Now, if there's a decision to start anticoagulation, there are also other rules like the atira, has bled, or hemorrhages with a two in the middle. Yeah. Guys, I don't really get how you'd say that. I know. M or two hedges. <laughs> M or two hedges. I, I come know. from a community that has a seven in our language, so exactly. Uh, I'm all for numbers as letters uh, to determine bleeding risks. We're not going to go into those rules, and you're encouraged to look them up if you want. But the the point here is is that, uh, well, one, treating patients with anticoagulants is not benign. So if there's clinical rules that are validated to help support treatment plans, yeah. that's a good thing. And and I think. You know, a big message here is there is a score system for everything you can imagine now, yeah. and be one of those educated people that looks them up. If you're, yeah. if you, you know, you're standing around as nurses and physicians with something you haven't seen before, that's why Doctor Google saves so many lives. Like, see if there's a tool to use to mm-hmm. figure out does this person need more care than we're providing them today in our emergency department it takes 30 seconds
0: absolutely and i think that that's one of the things that you said at the beginning we you and i probably in our personal life don't love playing by the rules we like to push and agitate and and encourage people to break those boundaries a lot of times but i think in these cases in medical Um, care, we have a duty really to ensure that we're doing best practice and causing less harm and understanding why we do things. And we've given you two clinical cases, one looking at a clinical decision guideline for imaging and another one for actual treatment. And medicine is evolving where we have all this advanced technology and we're so fortunate to have many interventions and therapies to treat patients to live longer, healthier. However, we're also challenged to be thoughtful in determining risk versus benefit of using some of these advanced technology interventions and therapy. It is important that we support research into validating clinical decision guidelines and tools to help augment the good old-fashioned history and physical exams so that we avoid these unnecessary tests, interventions, and treatments. Having a nurse-initiated diagnostic and interventions is great. It supports nurses in providing timely care for our patients. But we also need to be accountable for our decision-making based on our clinical judgment. And these types of tools are going to help us. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank wow. you very much. Thank you. Happy
1: anniversary. Happy
0: anniversary. I think we're
1: going to go for an anniversary dinner. Dinner. Now.
0: I think we should. With wine, right?
1: Oh, yes. The wine study <laughs> The wine will study is going
0: to continue. Alrighty, um, And
1: we'll see you in... March. March. Thank you. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursen podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca